How many of you have ever been to London? Raise your hand. Ah, quite a number of you. I know Andy Doyle, our new campus pastor out of Bartlett. He's got his hand up in Bartlett right now. By the way, Bartlett has got this new campus today. They open in a new location. So Bartlett, hello Bartlett. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Andy's been to London because he was born and raised in England, which is why he talks funny. Yeah. But if you ever get a chance to go to London, there are many great sites to see. One site you won't be able to miss is St. Paul's Cathedral. And you won't be able to miss it because it's set on Ludgate Hill, the highest point in London. And the dome of the cathedral stretches 365 feet into the air. It's a spectacular site uh, built by Sir Christopher Wren. Sir, Sir Christopher Wren was a brilliant anatomist, astronomer, mathematician, but most famous as an architect. In fact, back in the late 1600s, London burned to the ground. 87 churches were destroyed. Sir Christopher Wren helped rebuild over 50 of those churches. But St. Paul's is the most spectacular. Now, there's, there's an old story, you may have heard it before, about the rebuilding of St. Paul's Cathedral. A VIP, a VIP was asked to visit the construction site, and he stopped by one of the workmen, and he said, so, what are you doing? And the guy looked at him like he was, you know, that was a dumb question. He said, I'm laying bricks. The VIP nodded his head, and he moved down a little, little bit, and he asked another workman, he said, so, what are you doing? And the guy smiled, and he said, I'm earning a living so I can feed my wife and eight children. The VIP moved on a little further down the line and he stopped by a third workman and he said, so what are you doing? And this guy got to his feet and his chest swelled with pride and he announced, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren build a great cathedral. Well, that's a way to look at it. So what do you do for a living? See, we're beginning a four-part series today on the workplace, a series we're calling Job Change. And the reason we're calling it Job Change is we're hoping this series changes the way we look at work, gives us a fresh perspective, gives us God's perspective on our jobs. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, and as you're turning... If I were to ask you the question, what do you do for a living, which, by the way, is the title of today's sermon, how would you respond? Would you respond like the bricklayer at St. Paul's Cathedral? Would you say, well, that's a dumb question. I, you know, what do I do for a living? I drive a truck, or I teach third graders, or I sell insurance, or I run a plastics factory, or I chase two preschoolers around the house all day. That's what I do for a living. Or would you answer like the second guy at St. Paul's? Would you say, what do I do for a living? I earn a paycheck you know, so I could feed my family and uh, go to the outlet mall and shop and drive a new car and take nice vacations. That's what I do for a living, earn a paycheck. Or would you respond like the third dude at St. Paul's? Not that you'd say I'm, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a great cathedral, but, but would your, your chest swell with pride and would you say something like this? I am helping the God of the universe run this planet. <laughs> now you say that's a ridiculous statement. You know, isn't that a bit over the top? And maybe it would feel that way if you have a low-profile job, if you're a receptionist or a student in high school or you're a house painter. 
But even if you have a high-profile job, if you're a bank president, or you're a felony court judge, you're an airplane pilot, it, it still might sound over the top to say, I'm helping the God of the universe run this planet. Wouldn't it? Isn't it crazy talk to say something like that? Well, may, maybe not. Maybe not. If you're open to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to take a look at what God says about the work we do. And I hope, again, this changes your perspective about your job. Because whatever you do for a living, you know, whatever, this is how God wants you to view your work. Now, I'm going to give it to you today in four statements. Four I am statements. And as I, I give you these, you want to take out your outline, you want to jot these down because you might find them helpful this week before you go to work to look in a mirror and make these statements to yourself. Okay, here's statement number one. What do you do for a living? I am an image bearer. I am an image bearer. Now, if you're open to Genesis 1, you know that the opening verses of this chapter describe God's work in creation. You know, God makes the sun and the moon and the stars. He makes the oceans, the lakes, the streams. He makes the trees and the shrubs and the beautiful little flowers. He makes the birds, the fish, the, the land animals. And every time God makes something, he steps back and he says, whoa, that's good. I mean, that's very, very good. But, but we're going to pick up the story in verse 26. This is now the best of God's creating work. This is the pinnacle of his creation. God is about to make something in his own image. God's about to make something that would resemble himself. So, in fact, as I read verses 26 and 27 to you, if you got your own Bible, just uh, underline or circle the word image or likeness. We're talking about the image, the likeness of God. Something he makes to resemble himself. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So what is it God makes in his own image? Call it out. Oh, you guys are horribly out of practice here. Okay, I'm back. It's interactive, okay? What does God make in his own image? You know, us people. So what does that mean? Well, theologians, you know, have spelled it out. They said, well, making people in his image means God's created people to be spiritual beings, you know, able to connect with God. God has made people uh, moral beings. They have the capacity to discern right from wrong, you know, just like God. God. God has made people relational beings. They're able to communicate with each other and build relationships just like God. That's what it means to make people in his image. But there's something I haven't said yet. What is it God's been doing all through chapter 1? What's he been doing? He's been creating. He's been making stuff. God's been working. In fact, work is the very word that the writer of Genesis uses to describe God's creating business. Drop down to chapter 2, if you have your Bible open. Verse 2 says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work 
the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What has God been up to? He's been working. And here's something very interesting about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible as a worker is significantly different from the gods of other ancient literature. Uh, for example, the Babylonians had a god named Marduk. And Marduk got into a, a war, a battle with the goddess Tiamat. And when the battle was over, when the dust had settled, he had destroyed Tiamat and her remains, her guts, as it were, became the world. Kind of gross, isn't it? But see, see, Marduk, the Babylonian god, he was not a creator. He wasn't a worker. He was a warrior. The gods of the ancient Greeks. Yeah, they sat around doing a whole lot of nothing. They thought that work was beneath their dignity as God. They didn't work. You know, they didn't lift a finger except to occasionally drop another clump of grapes into their mouths. But the God of the Bible, he's a worker. In fact, he's, he's a manual laborer. He fashions people with his hands. So when we, listen, when we work, whatever we do for a living, we are bearing God's image. We're bearing the image of our Heavenly Father who created us to resemble Him. My son-in-law, Jameson, who was one of our teaching pastors, is now a full-time student at graduate school. So his work is he studies. He reads and reads and reads and reads. Well, Jameson has a little daughter named Charlotte, my granddaughter. And she watches her daddy read and read and read and read. What do you think Rachel, uh, Charlotte, rather, wants to do? She wants to be a reader. And so she picks up everything she could get her hands on, every book, every magazine, every piece of mail, every newspaper, and she tries to read it. Now, the problem is she's barely one year old. So this is what her, her reading looks like. Watch this. We are still not sure what language she's reading in. You know? <laughs> Our Heavenly Father is a worker. We've been made in His image to be workers. So when we work, we're resembling God, just like Charlotte, when she reads, is trying to resemble her daddy. And this gives a certain nobility to any job we do. You know, what, what, whatever you, you do for a a living, it gives nobility, knowing that you've been made in the image of God. You know, assuming that your job is, your, you know, you're not a hitman for the mafia or something, or a player for the Green Bay Packers. Or, I'm back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Seriously, the importance of seeing ourselves as image bearers on the job is driven home by a famous statement made by Martin Luther King, Jr., 
I love this statement. Let me read it to you. He says, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. He sweeps streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Don't you love that? It's inspirational. Now, I want you to say with me, with your job in mind, whatever you do for a living, I am an image bearer. Here we go. Ready? I am an image bearer. It was okay, but let's try it again. Here we go. I am an image bearer. And you are. You are. Here's the second statement. I am a ruler. And again, this may sound absurd to you as well, but go back to Genesis 1. We've already come across the word rule in this passage. Back in verse 26 that I read a moment ago, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, what? So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and so on. Now drop down to verse 28. God repeats his instructions for mankind to rule the planet. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Bible scholars point out that this word rule here in verse 28 in the original Hebrew of Genesis includes the notion of putting down opposition. There, there, there is an anticipation here of a coming conflict with evil. Now, let me, let me jump ahead in the Genesis story for a moment. You know, up to this point, God's been creating things, and everything's, everything's been good. Good, good, good. He makes mankind really good, really good. And then Satan enters the picture, God's arch enemy, and he tempts the original couple, Adam and Eve, to sin, to flagrantly disobey God. And once, once sin enters the picture, it corrupts everything it touches. E even work. I mean, work is supposed to be this, this good thing. We do it as image bearers. And even work gets corrupted. The workplace becomes a battlefield. In fact, I want you to turn over two chapters to Genesis 3. After work enters the picture, let me read to you what God says to Adam about his work as a keeper of the Garden of Eden, verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it, because you flagrantly disobeyed me, cursed is the ground because of you, through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you, you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Wow, it's going to be tough. You know, because sin has entered the picture, our, our workplaces are sometimes difficult spots, aren't they? You know, sometimes the job that we do is tedious, it's unpleasant, it's burdensome. You know, it's kind of like uh, C.S. Lewis, his description of the land of Narnia. 
In his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I love his description of Narnia. The wicked white witch is ruling at the time, and because of that, C.S. Lewis says, Narnia is a place where it's always winter and never Christmas. Some of you, your, work, your workplace feels like that, doesn't it? You know, lots of winter, very little Christmas. Chicagoans get this analogy, right? Winter. <laughs> we know about long, about long winters. Tom Nelson has written a book called Work Matters. We don't have it for you this weekend, but I promise in the coming weeks of the series, we'll have it for you at Resource at our four campuses. Best book I've read on, on, on the workplace. Work Matters. He says the systems, technologies, economics, and structures we deal with every day reflect a broken, fallen world. We face difficult people in the workplace, dog-eat-dog competition, government regulation, the constant threat of possible litigation, layoffs and reduction of workforces, political movering, maneuvering, jobs that are less than desirable. See, this is all because of sin. He, he's not painting a very pretty picture of the workplace, but God sends us into an environment like that with the instructions, I want you to be a ruler. You say, like, me? A ruler? Yeah, yeah, I, I want you to subdue the influences of evil wherever you encounter them on the job. So when you go to work, I want you to take on chaos. I want you to subdue conflict. I want you to fix things that are broken. Listen, friends, God wants us to show up for work like the sheriff who arrives at a wild west town to clean things up. You say, well, that's cool. What does it look like? Well, it depends on the job you do. You may be a third grade teacher with a class of unruly students who instills in them a love for learning. You may be a plant worker who, who figures out a better way to produce something. You may be a supervisor who settles conflict between warring co-workers. You may be an entrepreneur whose new way of doing business is creating new job opportunities for people who don't have a job. You, you may be a McDonald's worker who makes the bathroom sparkle. These are just examples of what it means to rule. You know, I have friends... This is really cool. They started a, a company to provide temporary housing for people who lose their home because of fire or tornado or some other disaster. Their home base is in St. Charles, and the business has been bo booming. They're ruling. They're, they're overcoming the ravages of sin in the workplace, so to speak. God wants you to be a ruler. Look at your job. Look at your job. Where, wherever you see something that needs fixing, wherever you see confusion, wherever you see uh, people who aren't getting along, wherever you see injustice, wherever you see a mess, wherever you see a problem that needs to be solved, be a ruler. Now, I know some of us are thinking to ourselves right now, yeah, you know, I could be a ruler if I was in a position of influence, but I am not the company's CEO. I don't own it. I'm not the principal of the school. Just work there. I'm not a sales manager. I'm not the foreman of the plant. I'm just a peon. I can't rule. Well, yes, you can. There are ways in which you can rule. There are ways in which you can make the fallen world of your workplace a better world. Now, I love to read baseball biographies. 
And so this summer, in addition to reading a bunch of stuff in preparation for coming sermon series, I read a, uh, a biography of the 1908 Cubs. That was the last time we won the World Series. That's a long time. <laughs> I read a biography of Mariano Rivera, greatest relief pitcher in history, retired a year or so ago from the Yankees. I, I read my favorite was a biography of Brooks Robinson, a childhood baseball hero of mine, played third base for the Baltimore Orioles, arguably the, the greatest third baseman ever. But Brooks was known as a nice guy. You know, the, the book, it's not a Christian book that I read, but there's no doubt about it, he's a, you know, he's a Christ follower. And so it impacted his character, and his character impacted the attitude on and off the field that, uh, that Brooks brought, how he treated other people, his work ethic. You know, Bible, uh, baseball historians say he may have been the nicest guy to ever put on a baseball uniform. He changed the culture of his team. In fact, Baltimore became a championship contender while Brooks Robinson was there. Not just because of his baseball playing skills, but because of who he was. And he wasn't the team's owner. He wasn't the GM. He wasn't the manager. wasn't even the third base coach. He was an infielder. But he changed the culture of where he was. So I want you to say with me, with respect to your job, okay, call your job to mind right now. I want you to say, I am a ruler. You know, whether you're, whether you're a carpenter or you're a CPA, whether you're the CEO, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a junior in high school and your job is being a student, you know, you can impact the corporate culture, so to speak. I am a ruler. Say it with me. I am a ruler. Now, just a footnote to this point. Let me remind you that the reason this world needs good rulers on the job is because sin has messed things up, you know, especially in the workplace. Here's the dilemma. If we're all sinners, and we are, then how can we be good rulers in the workplace? How can we make the fallen world of our workplace a better world if we're part of the problem? If we're showing up for work as sinners ourselves? Good question. The Bible gives us an answer. The Bible says if you want to make the fallen world of your workplace a better world, you've got to start with the fallenness of your own life. Now here's the bad news. The ba bad news is your sin has separated you from a holy God. You know, the wicked things you think and say and do every day, which we all do, separate you from a holy God. There's a, a distance, an alienation here. But the Bible tells us God couldn't stand for that alienation to persist. So he sent the world, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ didn't come to earth simply to be a good role model. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin. What's the penalty? Well, the Bible says our sins deserve death. Death? Well, yeah, if you go your own way instead of God's way, you're, you're choosing to unplug from the giver of life. That spells death. So Jesus came to earth to take the death we deserve. He died upon the cross, an infinite sacrifice, infinite value. So if you, listen, if you will surrender your life to him, even today, if you've never done this before, if you will tell Jesus, I want you to be my savior, save me from death, 
I want you to be the king of my life. I want you to rule in my life. Then the Bible promises that God will forgive your sins and Christ will send his spirit to come live on the inside. And once the spirit comes to live on the inside, you will be empowered by God to make the fallen world of your workplace a better world. Don't try it without the spirit of God on the inside. You get it? Good. And again, if, if you've never done this before, this is something we specialize in helping people do at Christ Community. You know, any weekend after a weekend service, go back to the Welcome Center and say, okay, I want to begin. I, I want to fully surrender to Christ. I want to begin this new relationship with him, and we'll, we'll help you get started. Number three, I am a God hire. I am a God hire. Go back to Genesis another time. We're in Genesis 2 now, and I want to read three verses for you. The writer of Genesis has already described God's creation of the world in chapter 1. Interestingly, in chapter 2, it's kind of a repeat. He goes back to the beginning and he talks about creation again, but this time from the standpoint of mankind whom God has created in his image. It's a description of the work that God gives mankind to do. So, verse 5, just going to touch down on three verses here. Verse 5, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung, sprung up. Now get this, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. No one to work the ground. See, God's not going to create plants until he's ready to provide a gardener, a landscaper to look after them. There's going to be a job that's got to be done. Drop down to verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Ah, God's got the person he needs to do the job. Drop, drop down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Okay, now let me ask you a real obvious question. Adam is given a job to do. Who gives him the job? Who hires him as it were? Call it out. God does. Who hires us? Who puts us in our job? Here, here's a simple point I want to make. We, we all work for God. You know, God, in a sense, is the, is the one who's hired you to do the job that you do. God is your ultimate boss. There, there, there are a couple of verbs. Go back to verse 15 here. There, there's a couple of, of verbs that help to underscore this truth. Verse 15, God tells Adam to do two things in the Garden of Eden. He is to work it, and he is to take care of it. See those two verbs? Very interesting in the original Hebrew of this text. The, the word chosen for work, the verb, sometimes in other passages is translated as worship. In a different context, same word translated here as work, work the garden, can be translated as worship. Worship God. And the second verb, take care of it, take care of the garden, is another Hebrew verb that in other contexts of the Old Testament can be translated to mean obey God's word. Isn't that interesting? The two verbs used to describe Adam's work are also verbs used to describe serving God, worshiping him, obeying his word. Kind of intentional, don't you think? God's way of underscoring the fact that when you go to work, you go to serve God me. You know, that's how the Apostle Paul views work. 
Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 23, he says, and whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So who's your boss on the job? God. Do you see yourself as a God hire? Even if you run the company, do you see yourself as a God hire? There, there, there's, there's a word I want to give you that will help you maintain this perspective on the job. It's the word vocation. Now, you've heard of the word vocation, but do you know what it means? Okay, it, it comes from the, the, the Latin. It means a calling. A calling. And you could see voice, V-O-C, in vocation. Because we're to listen to a voice. There's someone who calls us to the job. Who is that person? It's God. We work for God. It's a calling from God. If you look at your work that way, it will change your perspective. It will give it purpose because no matter what you do, you do it for God. In fact, there's another word we sometimes use for work. It's not as good a word. It's the word career. We sometimes describe our job as, well, that's my career. You know where career comes from? Two French words, cart, circle. You see where this is going? Is, is your work pushing a cart in a circle round and round and round and round, day after day after day after day after day? So you have a choice how you're going to view your job. Is it a vocation? Is it a calling from God? Are you there to serve him, whatever you do? Or are you... You pushing your cart around and around and around and around with nowhere really to go. Now, let's be honest. There are uh, circling round moments in every one of our jobs, right? Uh, you know, if you work at a plant and you made thousands of the same widget day after day this past week, you, you know there's a certain amount of routine to every job. Even if you're a doctor, you may have seen flu patient after flu patient after flu patient. Even if you're a, a pastor, you get up on Monday mornings and you say, oh, the whole thing's going to start again. I've got to write a new sermon for next week. And the next week, it'll be another one and another one. If you're a stay-at-home mom, it's one poopy diaper after another, right? Do I hear an amen? <laughs> so there, there's a certain amount of routine, repetitiveness to everything we do. But what I'm suggesting here is, is that if you have a sense of purpose on the job, even when doing mundane and repeated tasks, it'll be, be because you, you keep reminding yourself, you know, God hired me. And so everything I do, it, it's all about serving God. It's all about serving God. This perspective will not only give your work a purpose, it will also give your work, guarantee your work a reward. I mentioned a moment ago that passage in Colossians 3. Verse 23, where Paul says that we're working for the Lord, not just for some human boss. In the very next verse, verse 24, Paul adds, and you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward because it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Have you ever failed to receive from your job some reward you thought you deserved? You say, oh yeah. You know, maybe it was a bonus you thought you'd earned and you, you never got, or a bump in your salary, or a commission check. Maybe it, it had nothing to do with money. You worked hard expecting a little bit of praise, which you never got, or a promotion, or a, a wider spread of responsibility never came. 
Or maybe it, it wasn't just lack of reward. Maybe it was negative reward. You were rewarded for, for your hard work with what? With criticism. You know, or somebody came along and stole your best customer or took credit for your work or sued you. You say, well, you know, what is this? You know, fortunately, the Bible says, as we go to work and work for God, he not only ensures that our work will have purpose, he will reward everything we do. He will reward everything we do. When we, when we can confidently say, I'm working for God and God will reward me, then we could put up with a lot of crud at work. Say it with me. I am a God hire. I am a God hire. One more time. I am a God hire. Fourth and finally, I am a provider. Go back to the text one last time. Pick it up in verses 16 and 17. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, there's a connection here I want you to see, and it's so obvious. Sometimes you miss the most obvious things in Scripture. You know, in verse 15, God had put Adam in the garden and said, you're to work it, you're to take care of it. And then in verses 16 and 17, God says, and by the way, you know, those trees that you're taking care of, you're free to eat of any of them, you know, with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the connection I want you to see here. The, the trees that will provide Adam with something to eat are the trees that he's been commissioned to take care of. So, so we can assume if Adam doesn't take care of the trees, he's not going to have anything to eat. And there's a biblical principle here. The, the principle is you don't work, you don't eat. The, the, the principle is that God has assigned us work to do because it's one of the ways that we provide for our needs. And the Bible has got so much to say against the sin of slothfulness, laziness. The, the Old Testament book of Proverbs is filled with these pithy little sayings that warn us against the pitfalls of laziness. One of my favorites, Proverbs 20 verse 4, describes a farmer who's so lazy during planting season, he just sits in his recliner sipping iced teas. And then, then when harvest comes, now he's not plowed, he's not planted seed, he's not done anything, but harvest comes and he goes out, out to the, the farm and he's surprised there's no crop. Like, what happened? You know, the, the writer of Proverbs is saying if you, if you don't work, don't expect there to be something uh, provided for your welfare, for your sustenance. The Bible goes one step further in this regard. Let me say as an aside, obviously God is responsible for meeting our physical needs, but I want to underscore he most often does that by enabling us to work. Work is how we provide for ourselves and our families. But now the Bible takes this one step further. Work is not only the way that we provide for ourselves, it's also the way God enables us to meet the needs of other people. This is the way God enables us to meet the needs of other people. Ephesians 4, verse 28, critical passage. Write this one down. Christ followers must work, Paul says, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So we work to put food on our tables, 
But working also gives us the opportunity to do what? To do what? To provide for others' needs. Not, well, we've provided for our needs, so now we could move to luxuries. So we have more money to spend on big ticket items or nicer vacations or eating out. And God says, I gave you your job so after providing for your own needs, you can meet the needs of other people. Now, the most obvious way you do this, you earn money so you're able to give money to need-meeting organizations like your church. You know, this is what the tithe, the first 10% of your income is all about. You, you put it in the offering back because your church is meeting the physical and spiritual needs of people in your community and around the world. And by the way, if you're not a generous giver yet, you don't understand one of the reasons God's given you your job. And maybe someday you'll lose your job and God will have to teach you another reason you go to work. The reason I provide you with something to do is so you could meet your own needs and the needs of other people. But there's a bigger principle here than just earning money to give money. A broader principle I want you to see. I want you to see that your work itself, okay, not just the money you earn, but your work itself is a way to provide for other people. Now, let, let me illustrate what I'm saying here. And I owe this illustration to Tom Nelson, who authored that book I mentioned earlier, Work Matters. Nelson was reflecting on a business trip that he had taken from his home in Kansas City to L.A. And this is what he writes. He says, when I arrived at the Kansas City airport, the baggage handlers assisted me with my luggage. At the gate, security personnel served me. Then a gate agent facilitated my getting on the plane. And on the plane, the pilots charted the course and readied us for flight. A maintenance team filled the plane with jet fuel and even fixed an ailing toilet. Once we were airborne, a flight attendant brought me a cup of coffee. Now listen to what he says. It was in and through many individuals' diligent work that I was able to get to my destination and be ready for my meetings. You hear what Nelson is saying here? You know, as these airline people, as they did their work, passengers, including himself, had their needs provided for. Now, as I read that, I thought, you know, that's kind of cool for him to recognize that, that other people were working and meeting his needs. But it caused me to wonder, did the employees themselves see doing their job in this light? Did they view their work as providing for others, meeting others' needs? I mean, take, for example, the dude who fixed the plane toilet. You know, how did he see his job? Did he, did he see a bunch of backed-up sewage? Or did he think to, to himself, you know, if I fix this, a lot of desperate people mid-flight, they're going to have their physical needs met, you know, as soon as the pilot turns off the fasten seatbelt sign. Yeah? When, when you look at, at your job, whatever job you do, do you connect it in some way with meeting people's needs, providing for people? Now, some jobs, this is really easy to do. I mean, if you're a doctor or if you're, you're an auto mechanic, you could see how what you do meets others' needs. Other jobs, it's a little harder. So how does what I do meet, meet needs? You may have to work at it a little bit. It may be the needs of a customer, the needs of a client, the needs of a patient, the needs of someone else on your work team, a coworker whose needs you're meeting. 
I would dare say that even a doctor and an auto mechanic can go to work with a totally different perspective, a self-centered perspective, be all about doing the job for their own sake instead of meeting others' needs. So this takes a job change, a shift in perspective. Can we begin to do what we do with a thought in mind? I'm a provider. I'm here to meet needs. Years ago, probably two decades now, there was a movie called Mr. Holland's Opus. Did you ever see that movie? Richard Dreyfuss was nominated for an Academy Award for playing the role of Glenn Holland, a high school music teacher, band director. What he really wanted to do is he wanted to compose a symphony. This would be his magnum opus, and he thought the best way to do this is get a paying gig like teaching high school students, and then on the side, he would be able to devote himself to the really important thing, writing this symphony. Only trouble was, caring for students sucked up all his time, and so year after year after year after year, he didn't get around to writing a symphony. Three decades later, he's about to retire, and it finally dawns on him my magnum opus all these years was not composing a symphony. It was shaping the lives of countless high school students. It's like a switch gets flipped in his brain. That's what it was about. You know, your job is not about the tasks that you do. It's about the people you serve, the needs that you meet. So I want you to say with me, I am a provider. Here we go. I am a provider. What do you do for a living? You know, I hope this week before you go to work, you will look in the mirror and you will say, I'm an image bearer. I'm a ruler going to work to push back darkness. I'm a God hire. I'm there to serve him, however menial the task. I'm a provider. I'm going to meet needs to provide for people. Now we're going to close this portion of our service in prayer and then transition into a time of communion. This is a rich time. So as I pray, I'm going to ask the campus pastors at our other three campuses to step onto the platform and get ready to lead uh, their congregations in a time of communion just as we'll be doing here in St. Charles. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we bow before you, we're amazed at the practicality of your word. You address even the basic stuff of our lives, like what we do for a living, and you want it to count. You, you want it to mean something. You want us to walk out the door in the morning with purpose. And so I pray that you'd help us apply the truth that we just learned from your word. And now as we turn and we look to the one who made it possible for us to be world changers, for us to step into a fallen world and make it a better world because he has saved us from the fallenness of our own hearts by giving his life on the cross. As we hold in our hands in just a few moments the bread and the cup, let us be mindful of the life that Christ gives and only Christ can give. We pray in his name. Amen.